Whether you're taking a rip down the lease road in your jacked-up truck or flying first class to Houston, Texas, it's time to sit back and relax for another exciting episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. This episode is brought to you by Tendeka, a global specialist in advanced completions and production solutions for the oil and gas industry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, Justin Gauthier. Welcome to this week's episode of Oil & Gas Onshore. I'm here today with Dr. Gleb, and may you pronounce your last name? I should have asked you this, but how do you pronounce your last name? Sipurski. So it's C, the T is silent, Sipurski. Sipurski. All right. Well, hopefully I did an okay job at it. And you are known as the disaster avoidance expert. Is that right? That is absolutely correct. I help folks avoid disasters. Very well. Very well. Well, before we get going, I just want to take a quick break here. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and do me a huge favor to take a few minutes and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Any feedback is welcome and appreciated, good or bad. Also, if you feel like you have a great story, idea for a show, or simply just have any questions, please hit me up on LinkedIn. So this will be a little bit of a different interview, but I felt like we could generate some great conversation and provide value for the listeners out there, something that they can relate to. So known as the disaster avoidance expert, Dr. Gleb is on a mission to protect leaders from dangerous judgment errors known as cognitive biases by developing the wisest and most profitable decision making strategies. Dr. Gleb is also a best-selling author of Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. That was published in 2019, which is, I think, your most recent book. That's right. Yeah, okay. So then you've also got The Truth Seeker's Handbook, A Science-Based Guide, and The Blind Spots Between Us, How to Overcome Unconscious Cognitive Bias and Build Better Relationships. Is that something you've got upcoming? Because I saw in there it said 2020. That's right. Yeah, it'll be coming out in April 2020. Great. Well, Dr. Gleb, thanks for coming on to the show. You mentioned it a little bit before, but we're not sitting here face to face. Where are you recording out of today? I'm recording from Columbus, Ohio. Go Bucks. Let's beat Clemson. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it's a big weekend. So this will be aired quite a bit after the game. So you know, we'll have to see. Do you have any guesses as to the score, what it might be? I'm guessing the... Buckeyes will win by more than 10 points, but less than 20. Okay. Are you a big gambler or are you just setting your odds there just for fun? <laughs> I always like to make probabilistic estimates, and this is one of the strategies of addressing dangerous judgment errors. We tend to have a very <laughs> kind of black and white perspective on the world. You know, either something will happen or not. You know, either the Buckeyes will win or Clemson will win. And it's much <laughs> more effective to actually, for the sake of our own ability to make good decisions to make more specific predictions and then you can update your beliefs over time because then you're not like black or white you're like this is what will happen with this specificity and this is what i think will happen and then if you're wrong that's a chance to improve your thinking otherwise it's not really going to help you if you're just you know black or white 50 50 (laughs) You know, I like that. You're coming out with nuggets and we're not even five minutes in. This is going to be good, I can tell. So uh, how long have you been up up in Ohio for? Oh, I've been here for over eight years. Yeah, I I was a professor at Ohio State University. That's just why I first came to Ohio, got a job here as a professor, and I professored for seven years at Ohio State. So that's where I got my passion for the Buckeyes. And at the same time, I was doing moonlighting as a trainer, consultant, coach on helping people make the best decisions and avoid business disasters, all sorts of disasters. I mean, the oil and gas industry certainly has its share of disasters, so it needs to be avoided. And how do you maximize the best decisions? 
And then about a year and a half ago, I went into this field full time. You know, I had enough clients to make it worthwhile to go, you know, leave academia and do what I'm doing right now: training, consulting, coaching, writing, content creating full time. Wow, good for you! Thank you. So, before we get going, talking about disaster avoidance and things of that nature, how would you describe, and just out of mainly my own curiosity, just the culture and, and coming into the United States? You know, you said your parents came here when you were an early sort of, I think, an adolescent, but how, how would you describe the differences in your experience being here compared to like what it was back home? Oh, gosh. Well, I don't consider that home. I was 10 when I left. So I left a sure. country in Eastern Europe called the Republic of Moldova in 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. I'm very glad that my parents left. Moldova is actually something I found out later, one of the least happy countries in the world. So I would wow. not have wanted to stay there. But yeah, obviously, I didn't know that at the time I was a kid. I mean, it's really hard to describe. I mean, I was a kid back then. I remember the transition was very hard. When you're a kid and you're coming into a new culture and you have no idea what the norms are, what the etiquette is, what the cultural background is, you know, what the cool things are to do, what are the not cool things to do, it's hard to adapt. So I remember it being really difficult to adapt at the time. So that was kind of part of my experience. One of the things, an interesting aspect of it, my parents settled in New York City and we were pretty dirt poor as immigrants are. My mom washed people's houses. We kind of got lucky with my dad. He drove for an Italian bakery. He drove a bread delivery truck. So at least we always had bread that fell off the back of the truck. (laughs) (laughs) So that was a nice aspect of my childhood. And Many people who came when they were 10, they chose to drop their accent. Obviously, I chose not to. Good for you. Yes, I chose to keep my accent. But I kind of later I found out, I mean, I was proud of my cultural heritage and my parents taught me to be proud of it, which is why I chose to keep it. But I found out later that was kind of a dumb decision from the perspective of people trusting me. Because what the research on this topic showed when I got into the research on dangerous judgment errors is that one of the judgment errors we all make as human beings is that we trust people who have a foreign accent less than we trust people who don't have a foreign accent, or at least in the United States. So there's. So why is that, do you think? Oh, so that relates to the you know, kind of, I guess we're getting into the topic, the broader principle behind dangerous judgment errors. Why is it bad to go with our gut intuitions, which is the topic of my book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. Well, our gut intuitions are actually, you might be surprised, that they're not adapted for the modern, complex, multicultural, global environment in which, you know, everyone functions, especially in the job place, where we have to work with people who are very different from us. And that is not something that our gut intuitions are adapted for. They're adapted for the savannah environment. When we were hunters and foragers living in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people trying to get bison and so on, catch those. (laughs) And it was very important for us to be tribal, for us to really have a very strong sense that we like people who are with our gut, with are comfortable with, we like people, we trust people who are part of our tribe, and we are hostile toward people who are not part of our tribe. It was very important for the tribal environment, because if your tribe didn't survive, you would die, and if you're kicked out of your tribe, you would die. So it was really, you know, when you, when you need to fight off opposing tribal members. 
itself in that environment, it made a ton of sense to not trust people based on signs, intuitive signs that they're not part of your tribe. And of course, accent is a very, very important element of who is part of your tribe or not. Of course, looks are. So we have racism and ethnic discrimination coming from that as well. Things like you know values, beliefs, and so on. If we see someone who has a quality that is important to us as who, whatever we consider important, and we don't like that quality, we will trust that person less than they deserve to be trusted. We will like them less than they deserve to be liked. And that's a cognitive bias, a dangerous judgment error called the horns effect. The opposite goes for what's called the halo effect. And that is if we like somebody because they have one characteristic that is important to us as a tribal member, something that indicates they're part of our tribe, our in-group, the people that we like, will trust that person more than they deserve to be trusted. And that's called the halo effect. And those are two out of over 100 cognitive biases that we need to fight in order to make good decisions in the modern world. Wow. And you mentioned earlier about keeping your accent. So I guess I have a, a two-part question is, you know, have you considered changing your accent or is it too late? And have you experienced that, what you're talking about, that sort of, I guess, discrimination or antitrust, if you will, being, you know, from another country, having the accent? Is this something you've witnessed firsthand? Yes. So, well, to the first question, by the time I learned about this topic when I was in graduate school in my 20s, I couldn't drop the accent. When you're a kid, it's really relatively easy to change the way you speak, but not in your mid-20s. I mean, so that was not possible. That's the first part. Second, oh, definitely. I've had a lot of discrimination. I mean, you know, it's kind of the, you very much see that people say things like, you know, you're not from around here, are you? And kind of, you know, when they hear my accent, they're kind of shocked and look at me funny. And I grew up in New York City, so it wasn't as bad in New York, although I still got a little bit of that. But when I lived in North Carolina, that's when it was <laughs> quite a bit worse. And whenever I go, I mean, I go to Texas occasionally, travel to do talks, I'm a speaker, I'm an international speaker, travel internationally. But in the US, when I travel, I go to Texas, I certainly get the, you're not from around here vibe from people kind of, "Eh, I don't know about this guy. And the same thing. So in the South, it happens pretty frequently, less so on the coasts, because the coasts tend to be more multicultural. But here, I live in Columbus, Ohio, in the Midwest. I mean, it happens in Columbus in the city itself, but especially when I go to smaller towns in Ohio, it happens much more. So yeah, definitely. And it doesn't only apply to accents. So I was still professor at Ohio State when I gave a presentation to a group of HR professionals, leaders in the central Ohio area, And this was a presentation to a diversity inclusion conference. It was diversity inclusion conference 2018. And I was giving this presentation talk on how to effectively address the halo and horns effect and other sorts of problems in diversity inclusion. Now, for those who are in a cave, the biggest football rivalry in the world is between the Ohio State Buckeyes and the University of Michigan Wolverines. So that's huge, huge football rivalry. And so... I asked them, hey, and these are Central Ohio people, so they're, you know, Columbus, overwhelming route for the Buckeyes. I asked the over 100 HR professionals who are here for diversity inclusion conference, diversity inclusion experts, how many of you would hire a Wolverines fan? And you know what? Only three of them would hire a Wolverines fan. 
So three of them, <laughs> only three, you know, and this is like not an accent. This is not anything. This is just kind of sports. This is tribalism. I mean, what does rooting for one team or another have to do with the quality of somebody who in the workplace? And I asked them that and they're like, eh. they still wouldn't hire somebody who's a Wolverines fan because of tribalism. They feel very uncomfortable with this person. So this is something that is fundamentally important for us. And of course, it causes bad decisions in all sorts of areas in business relationships. I mean, hiring what people would choose to work with or not work with. I mean, it would cause people who are to hire here in Central Ohio, they're much more likely to hire somebody who is a Buckeye fan than somebody who is not a Buckeye fan, even if they're not Wolverines fan. And of course, then you get bad hires who you just hire because they're Buckeye fans and you like them, but they're not actually competent. And of course, you miss out on a bunch of people who are highly competent, but they're Michigan fans. And the same thing goes for all sorts of ways you choose to work with people or choose not to work with Right, right. Well, I mean, I can certainly identify, especially even here, you know, with oil and gas, two big rivalries here in, you know, in the Gulf, just off the Gulf Coast here, you have your Texas A&M, LSU, you've obviously got Alabama, and yeah, I mean, I don't see it per se. I mean, being Canadian, I kind of have the outside looking in view, but it's certainly I can see it with our industry, what you're speaking on happens a lot. And so, you know, if you've never worked with it, you know, the oil and gas world. Okay. So yeah, it's, it's something that we deal with on, on an everyday, you know, and, and historically our industry has been dominated by males and, you know, generally white males. It's historically, that's, you know, been predominantly the people that are in our industry, but I'm excited and happy to see that changing. And so I guess my question would be, you know, how do you overcome something like this? And I, I want to talk about your books and stuff like this, but I, I just think this is a neat topic, but how do you see that changing? Are we changing as a nation or even, you know, as North Americans? I mean, what's the current status and what is it going to take to overcome this, do you think? Well, of course, this is described in much more depth in my book. How do you overcome these cognitive biases, including the hail and horns effect? But the crucial thing to realize is that unless we realize, unless we are aware, we can't overcome this. And let me give you another example. When we were primitives in a savage environment, I mean, the hail and horns effect tribalism, they're primitive savage intuitions. They are the natural state of being. Now, when you think about babies and you see them eating with their hands, that's a natural state to eat. That's how our ancestors ate. That's kind of how we're inborn to eat. Reach with our hand into the baby food or, you know, for the mammoth bone and eat the mammoth bone. We've learned to eat with our forks and knives. That is how we've learned. But that took a lot of effort. And we don't remember this effort because we were like small kids when we learned how to do this. But it took a lot of effort. And now we all eat with our forks and knives. That's because we learned how to do that. And our parents, you know, kind of forced us to do that. I mean, except if you're eating pizza. And if you're eating pizza with a fork and knife, you know, you're weird. So sorry about that. (laughs) But (laughs) that's one example. I'll give you another example. So, you know, for the non-millennials out there who actually know how to drive and aren't taking Uber and Lyft everywhere, you might remember that when you were learning how to drive, that might have been pretty difficult. I remember when I was learning how to drive, I mean, one of the hardest things that I had to learn how to do was look over my shoulder, you know, kind of for that blind spot, because it's a very not intuitive thing to do. You kind of look in the mirror and you switch. But I mean, I failed my first driving test because I wasn't looking over my shoulder when I switched lanes. That wasn't great. Now I've learned over time to do this very not intuitive behavior of looking over my shoulder when I switch lanes. 
But again, it's something I had to learn how to do. It's a hard thing to do. I mean, right now, we in the United States struggle with the obesity epidemic in general, right? That's because in the savannah environment, it was very important for us to eat as much sugar as possible. So our intuition is to eat as much sugar as possible. Many of the listeners can probably restrain themselves from, you know, taking that third chocolate chip cookie. You know, second one is A-OK, but the third one is, is too much. You had to learn how to do that. That's a mental habit that you had to develop. And so in the same way, those are the three examples, you know, not looking over your shoulder, eating with your hands and knives, you know, taking as many chocolate chip cookies as you can stuff in your mouth. Those are the natural primitive savage states of being. In all cases, in order for you to achieve your health goals, your you know, not crashing into things goals for your civilized normal eating so people aren't looking at you weirdly as you eat your steak with hands and you had to achieve a certain mental habit change. You had to change that habit into a different mode of feeling and thinking. So in the same way, in order to address the halo effect, the horns effect, and any of these other cognitive biases that the book talks about, you need to change your mental habits, the way you think and the way you feel. So the first thing to do is to be aware that it's happening. Because, you know, all those people in the HR conference, they weren't really aware that they were biased, prejudiced against Wolverines fans. Once they got aware of this, you know, they can kind of work on it. But first, you need to have awareness of this and care about this problem. So awareness and concern, you need to understand how it's hurting you. So you need to understand how the halo effect and how the horns effect and all the other biases that we'll talk about, how they're hurting you, how they're damaging you. They're causing you pain. They're causing you to make screwed up decisions about your business relationships, about your business plans, about your personal relationships, about you know, projects in your personal life, whatever you're doing. It's all applicable. You know, It's all about decisions. And then once you're aware, you need to use the strategies that are described in the book, never go with your gut, how pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters to address these problems. And there are specific counterintuitive strategies. And they're absolutely counterintuitive because they go against your intuitions. Our gut intuition is to eat as much sugar as possible. And we have to learn how to avoid that. You know, Our gut intuition is to sit on the couch and watch Netflix. And we have to learn that we need to put on our sweats and go to the gym for the sake of our health goals. So my work is on the cutting edge of the research and how do we actually deal with our mind to become mentally fit. You know, We kind of know what we need to do to become physically fit, but we don't know what we need to do to become mentally fit, make the best decisions, and not screw up our lives, not have disasters in our business and our personal life. So what we're, I'm talking about is how do you make these decisions? How do you make the best decisions? What are the strategies? What are the techniques you use to address this? And essentially to become civilized, like you eat with your fork and knife and you don't take the third chocolate chip cookie and you address the halo and horns effect, the tribalism. That's all about becoming civilized. Becoming civilized meaning learning how to live in the best manner in the modern, contemporary, disrupted world, which is very unlike the Savannah environment. Sure. So how do we as civilization actually become more aware? Because to me, and really that's for a lot of things in life, is being aware enough to be able to identify the issue or the cause and then being able to change that. But for what you speak of, I mean, how do we peel back the onion enough to actually become aware of this? Well, I gave the example of how I helped the HR professionals in the room become aware of, hey, you know, I'm sure that they would 
definitely hire somebody who doesn't belong to their race or doesn't belong to their gender, their ethnicity, their politics, and so on. The categories that they're looking at, but they're not looking at sports fandom and then they're not thinking about it. So it defaults to the natural state. And you have to go from the natural state. So in order to address the natural state, you need to learn about all of these dangerous judgment errors. They didn't know about the halo and horns effect. They were just thinking about, you know, hey, racism, sexism, ability, all of these protected categories. They didn't understand the broader principle behind it, the tribalism, because that's kind of on the cutting edge of the research, what I'm talking about right now. So you need to understand what are the broader principles, these cognitive biases. Now, you can look at the list of cognitive biases on Wikipedia. There are going to be over 100 of them. I don't always recommend Wikipedia, but in this case, I recommend it. It's a good source. There are good people working on the page who I know. And those will just describe the cognitive biases themselves, just so you understand what they are. Now, my book talks about the 30 most dangerous judgment errors, picks out the cognitive biases, the 30 most dangerous ones for business settings, for professional settings, how you work, and talks about how to address them. Chapter 7 of the book has an assessment on dangerous judgment errors in the workplace, and that is probably going to be the best tool for you to get awareness of specifically in the workplace where these cognitive biases come into play, because it doesn't say, you know, are you suffering from the halo effect or from the horns effect? It tells you about the behaviors that you would see in the workplace if you or people around you, of course, doesn't have to be you. I mean, you might be the most perfect, you know, saint and making the best decision out there, but, you know, a lot of people are making bad decisions around you. So you want to see whether people in your workplace are making bad decisions as well, yourself, other people. And so the assessment helps you do that. So I'll give you an example. The first question on the assessment is, what is the proportion of the projects in your workplace, in your work, that have gone over budget in the last year? So think about all the projects, you know, maybe you had 50 projects in the workplace. How many of them have gone over budget? You know, is it 20%? Is it 40%? Is it 60%? Is it 80%? When I give presentations to oil and gas professionals, with oil and gas leaders and other leaders in similar fields, I get very, very different answers. It goes anywhere from like 5% to, I think it was 96%. So very different answers. And that has to do with a cognitive bias called the planning fallacy. Now, intuitively, naturally, we have very high opinions of ourselves. We have very high opinions of our plans. So we make plans that are the best laid plans. We think everything will go nice and hunky-dory and everything will be good. And we don't intuitively address risks and threats in these plans. So this is a pretty big one, a pretty big problem. I mean, BP fell into this issue very badly when you had the oil spill because they were increasingly cutting safety regulation. There was decreasing investment into safety, and that was one of the biggest reasons for the oil spill. They were making plans, and they thought their plans would go well, and they weren't investing enough into safety to address safety problems so that they fell into the planning fallacy because that was a huge, huge over-budget issue with the disaster that happened. And that happens all the time on a smaller scale for oil and gas professionals and other sorts of professionals. So you want to see whether you're falling into the planning fallacy, whether your costs are higher than your budget regularly. And so that is an example of one of the cognitive biases that happens for us pretty frequently. And that is one out of 20 out of 30. So you have 29 others that you want to look at. Now, I have a free copy of the assessment if you can't afford to buy the book on 
disasteravoidanceexperts.com slash subscribe. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com slash subscribe. And you can get a free copy of the assessment on dangerous judgment errors in the workplace right there so that you can assess yourself what's going on there. So that is the best way to get awareness. You want to see what are the behaviors that you and others in your workplace are engaging in that would indicate that, hey, cognitive biases are present and screwing some stuff up. And then, of course, once you have that awareness, you can start to work on them. The assessment talks about how to do that, but my book talks about that in much more detail. Okay. So you take the assessment and then it, does it rate you or what's the deliverables on that? Yeah, exactly. Yep. So it rates you, it gives you percentages and, hey, here's the problems. So it gives you a, an overall rating of how vulnerable your workplace is to these dangerous judgment errors, what's going on. And it gives you the specific ratings. So you can look at the specific questions and look at, hey, this is the problem that is the biggest one for us. And then you can choose which problems to work on based on the overall rating and the specific ratings for each question. So yes, that's the assessment. Very interesting. Well, we'll make sure we put the link in the show notes. That way it's easily accessible for all the listeners. So is this topic something you've always been interested in? I'm curious to hear, like, why have you taken such a, you know, leap into this world to try and figure this out or essentially to help others? I mean, where does this drive come from? Well, it comes from my childhood, actually. So I mentioned my parents made a definitely a good decision to move to the United States, and I'm very glad for that. But they also made a bunch of dumb decisions, which I'm not glad for. <laughs> when I was a kid, I saw them fighting over the little stupid things, financially, not financially. I mean, my mom liked fancy clothing, liked feeling that she had nice, you know, things. So, I mean, my mom and my dad fought like over sweaters, you know, she wanted to get this $50 sweater and my dad was like, no, sweaters should never cost over $20. Stuff like this. There was a lot of dumb fighting. And even as a kid, I saw that it was stupid for them to fight over this. They wasted much more energy, time, labor, emotional labor fighting over the cost of a sweater than it would be to actually get the sweater. So that that was kind of one thing. I mean, but the worst incident was when my dad, so my dad was a real estate agent and he worked based on commissions. And there was this one time when he made a lot of money and he hid it from my mom because <laughs> his salary is variable. He could do that. He pretended it was a bad period. And he invested it into a apartment that he bought on the side, leased out. Now, several years later, when my mom found out, that was a huge scandal. Big, big blowout fight, really terrible, which I witnessed. And they separated for a while, lived apart. Eventually, they reconciled, but she could never really trust him again, you know? So... As a kid, that really shaped me. And, you know, it helped me see that adults made really, really bad decisions, especially around finances, that have a traumatic impact on kids around them, on other people around them. And, of course, they had an impact on their friends and their social network. Now, when I was growing up, so I mentioned I was born in 81, came to the United States in 91, and then I saw dot-com boom happening in the late 1990s, you know. For those who remember the Prince song, you know, party like it's 1999, the tech leaders were partying like it's 1999 when I was 18. And then, you know, they were on the front pages of the Wall Street Journal for all the right reasons. Billions and billions of dollars poured into these web van, pets.com, boo.com, and so on. Then a couple of years later, when I was 21, 2002, they all went bust. That was the dot-com boom and bust. And that was pretty terrible for you know these tech leaders. And it was pretty terrible for people who invested their life savings into these companies thinking that they're going up. And they 
you know, all busted. So seeing that, I saw that the big business leaders, I mean, they were on the front pages of the Wall Street Journal for the right reasons, and then on the front pages for all the wrong reasons. I mean, even worse was what happened with Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, when they hid their losses from the dot-com bust using fraudulent accounting methods. I mean, the leaders of those companies made horrible decisions. They knew that this fraudulent accounting would be uncovered sooner or later, but nevertheless, they persisted and they chose to use this fraudulent accounting. I mean, it staved off by a couple of years, the actual revelations. But once it was revealed, you know, those leaders were in the front pages of the Wall Street, walking in shackles to the police court, they're doing the perp walk. So it was horrible decision-making. Seeing that, I mean, my values from when I was a kid were always utilitarian, meaning wanting to do the most good for the most number. I saw that, you know, this is something that I can help with because I was always interested in it. I was studying decision-making from when my parents were making bad decisions. And I'm like, well, business leaders at the very top are making horrible decisions. So this is something I should study and understand and help out society with. And so I studied decision-making. I became a consultant, coach, trainer on decision-making author. And I've been doing that for the last 20 years or so. At the same time, I went into academia. And so I got a PhD in the history of behavioral science, studying how people make decisions in various contemporary and historical contexts. So that's kind of my background, cognitive neuroscientist and behavioral economist, looking at how our brains make decisions, specifically in economic context and how we behave there. So that's kind of my background. And that's what led me to write the book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions to Avoid Business Disasters, because that's where I summarized all of my experience doing consulting, coaching, training for leaders in all sorts of fields, including oil and gas, and the cutting-edge research on how can we actually become civilized in our decision-making as opposed to doing the primitive thing, going with our gut and screwing up our businesses and careers. Right. Well, so how would you describe, you know, a lot of folks in higher up positions, you know, in corporations and things of that nature, a lot of the decisions they make, they know that they might not be making the right decisions, but it's driven by ego, you know, the bottom line, profits. So, you know, they may not necessarily be going with their gut, but there's ulterior, you know, drives for them to make these decisions. I mean, how do you tackle that? So what happens with people who are making bad decisions in the top leadership are that they are being driven by their gut overwhelmingly. Bad decisions overwhelmingly come from our gut reaction. So let's go with Enron, WorldCom, and Tyco. What happened there? When we research why these leaders chose to make these bad decisions, it was an aspect of our savanna upbringing. So I mentioned the tribalism. And tribalism has two components. One of the components of tribalism is the desire to support people who are part of our tribe and to fight against people who are not. That's one aspect of tribalism. The other, there are two aspects. The other very important aspect of tribalism is our desire to get to the top of the tribal hierarchy, the social status seeking. In the tribal environment, it was incredibly important to get to the top of the tribal hierarchy because that's where you get the resources and that's where you spread your genes. So you survive, thrive, and reproduce. And so we are the descendants, overwhelmingly, of people who climbed to the top of the tribal hierarchy and spread their genes and survived and so on. And so in the current environment, there are a bunch of people who are very much driven by the desire to come, go to the top of the social hierarchy, and stay there. And once you're at the top, it's very hard to 
admit failure so that you come down. So these leaders, you know, Bernie Ebers and others, Enron WorldCom and Tyco, what they did is that they were just unable, now that we know their motivations a little bit, they were unable to acknowledge and to come down in a rational, reasonable manner from the top of the tribal hierarchy. They basically weren't willing to admit that they lost that they fail, that they're losers, that they're failures. I mean, when I talk to business leaders, it's one of the biggest fears that business leaders have, managers have, of, of being seen as losers, as failures by their peers. But, you know, it's not about money. I mean, with leaders of Enron, WorldCom, and Tyco, I mean, one more year of bonuses, it wouldn't have make a difference, especially considering the consequences of doing the perp walk. No, it was simply horrible, horrible decision-making because of the tribal intuition. And that happens... Oh, very often. I mean, look what happened. I mean, the CEO of Boeing was fired today. <laughs> and okay, yeah, yeah uh, for much the same reasons, much the same principles, Boeing made, was competing with Airbus and it was making very, very bad plans. It was cutting safety. Now we know that when we look at what happened with the 737 MAX, when it you know, crashed, Boeing was cutting safety. It was cutting corners. You know, there were whistleblowers within Boeing who were telling the leadership, who were telling the CEO, literally telling the CEO, hey, we're cutting corners here. This is not good. You know, stuff will be screwed up. And the leadership was just unwilling to listen. They were unwilling to be below the Airbus in the tribal hierarchy. So they were making really bad decisions trying to climb to the top of the tribal hierarchy, which caused, you know, over third, what, 346 deaths in two crashes. And even you could see in the crashes the same sort of pattern where the Boeing leadership, after the first crash, I mean, they should have really taken much more investigation, investigative efforts after the first crash, but they chose not to. They said, you know, everything's fine, hunky-dory, you know, just take a closer look at this electronic system we have. And then after the second crash, they were still really reluctant to ground the planes. They were reluctant to investigate. They said, everything's fine. We're all good. You know, this is not the problem of Boeing. This is the fault of the pilots and so on. And the aviation authorities around the world had to really force Boeing to ground the planes. So Boeing, the leadership, lost a lot of trust, lost a lot of credibility. You know, Boeing was the name for safety and so on. It'll never be the name of safety again. Boeing has lost that trust because the leadership was unwilling to acknowledge failure, to acknowledge mistakes, and to step down from the top of the tribal hierarchy. And look what happened. I mean, Boeing has lost over $26 billion in market capitalization. $26 billion, that's an imaginable number, I mean, to me. <laughs> $26 billion. And of course, now the CEO is fired. So you see, you know, consequences trickling down, happening. The leadership, I mean, the CEO is much lower in the social status now than if he would have delayed the production of Boeing's 737 MAX by six months and made sure it was actually safe. But here's what happens. People make irrational decisions all the time, even at the very top of the tribal hierarchy, even at the very top of our society, like in Boeing. So... Right, right. And not only for, you know, top executives at corporations, but for everyone out there, how much of an impact does our ego have in making decisions? Our ego has incredible impact. Our decision making naturally and intuitively is driven by emotions. About 80 to 90 percent of our decision making is driven by emotions. So that's kind of a natural intuitive state of things. If we just let things go as they are, if we don't apply effective decision making techniques, 
we will be overwhelmingly driven by our emotions in making decisions. And in fact, research shows, and this is pretty sad, but it's true that the more important the decision, the more likely the top leadership is to let their gut decide, to go with their gut. So again, the more important the decision, you know, you would think that the more important the decision, the more effort the leadership would put into a team decision making, the more they would listen to others, the more they would try to look for the most effective decision making techniques and apply them. But no, the more important the decision is for the company's future or their own career future, the more they turn to go with their gut because they feel more emotional about it. The more important the decision, naturally, the more emotional it is. So the more emotional the decision, the more they let their emotions rule them, as opposed to using the most effective decision-making techniques when it's most important, which is pretty terrible and horrible for the future of their companies and their careers, but that's what happens. Yeah, I can certainly understand that. I mean, what excites you the most about what you're currently doing? And, and what do you see? What does the future look like in this field of study? And do you think ultimately, you know, in the near future, is this something that us as a society can change? Or is this something generations down the line, it's just going to have to evolve into making better decisions? I really hope that we as a society can change this. We know we can change our intuitive habits. I mean, we learned how to eat with our forks and knives. We learned how to look over our shoulders. We learned how to not take the third chocolate chip cookie, or at least some of us have learned how to do that. These information that I'm talking about, I'll give another example. Consider what was happening with medicine 100 years ago. You know, doctors would sell snake oil with you know cocaine, sugar, and alcohol mixed in to treat your wounds. <laughs> I mean, you know, 200 years ago, they used leeches. You know, 100 years ago, they sold snake oil. And this was the state of medicine at the time because it wasn't based on evidence. It wasn't based on research. It was just based, you know, I'm a doctor, trust me, take this stuff. So that was the state of evidence, the state of medical science, medical practice at that time. And it was pretty terrible. It was pretty horrible. But we've done research. So medicine has increasingly moved from the field of, you know, I'm a guru, trust me, because I'm a guru and I know what the best thing is, into, hey, let's do evidence, let's do trials, let's see what's happening and actually implement the most effective research-based techniques. So that's been the stage of medicine in a very big nutshell over the last hundred years. So now we have evidence-based medicine where we overwhelmingly do comparative trials and see what actually works because a lot of the things that we thought worked actually don't. <laughs> so we still have some problems. I mean, people still practice some medical techniques that are not the best, do too many x-rays, too many, I mean, we could talk about that. That's a separate topic. But anyway, still some problems in medicine because of various financial incentives, but it's overwhelmingly much better than it used to be. Unfortunately, in business decision-making and life decision-making, we're kind of where medicine was about 100 years ago, where gurus would say, I'm a guru, trust me, <laughs> do the stuff that I'm doing. You know, I mean, think about the you know leaders like Tony Robbins and so on. And there's no meta, there's no research, there's, there's nothing there. He just says, you know, be primal, be savage, and do the thing that goes with your, you know, primal self. That's what Tony Robbins says. And that's what gurus like Tony Robbins say. They say, I've been doing this for, you know, 
X years. Trust me and do the same thing that I do. That is horrible advice because it's based on experience and they're selling you snake oil. They overwhelmingly tell people to go with their gut. Why? Because that's what people pay them for. People pay them to hear the comfortable things. You know, people pay doctors to get snake oil because it had cocaine, alcohol, and sugar. It was very tasty and made them feel high. So that's what they paid for. They didn't understand that that was horrible advice. You know, right now, if your doctor said, hey, how about this? You take a dozen donuts and you sit and watch Netflix all day and you'll be fine. (laughs) You'll probably not listen to the doctor. I hope you will fire the doctor and you would find a doctor who actually is competent, gives you uncomfortable advice, tells you to not eat a dozen donuts, not eat more than, you know, two donuts a day (laughs) and maybe watch Netflix for 30 minutes and do at least 30 minutes of exercise a day. So that's much better advice and it's in line with current medical standards, evidence-based medicine. We are right now moving to the early stage of evidence-based business decision-making and evidence-based life decision-making. I mean, my next book in April 2020 will be talking about relationships and be making the best decisions in professional and personal relationships. So it's applicable to all areas of life. Right now, the evidence-based decision-making field is only starting to be popularized. Now, We know the techniques that work. They're hidden in dense journal articles that you can pay and get $30 $30 per article if you want to pay that and then read it. It's going to be very dense. I don't think you'll get much beyond the abstract, most of you. So that's what I read. That's what's in the citations of the book, Never Go With Your Gut. And you can find over 100 articles and so on are going to be in the citations for the book. And I read them so you don't have to. And I'm popularizing them. So I'm in the stage where a number of doctors were in the 1910s and 20s who were popularizing what is effective medicine and trying to fight against the snake oil salespeople who unfortunately had the large market share and had the popular following. So I'm hoping that my work and other people's work, I mean, really, mine is the first book to talk about the decision-making. There are other people who write blogs and so on. David McCraney is a good one. You're Not So Smart podcast. So that's another one. Dan and Chip Heath do some other good work on this. So my work is trying to popularize the research, bring it to a broad audience, and actually make a difference in changing people's behavior to make the best decisions and not screw up their lives, not screw up their business, not screw up their careers. So I'm hopeful you know, using this parallel of medicine, because right now our medicine is much better than it was 100 years ago. You know, but who knows? You know, it's, this is difficult stuff. It's not easy. We still have an obesity epidemic here in the United States, although it's better than it used to be. You know, it's not nearly as bad as the obesity epidemic used to be. So I'm really hoping that the folks will take advantage of the research and making their good decisions and not go with their gut on their business decision-making and their personal life relationship decision-making, just as they're hopefully not going with their gut on, you know, going to the gym and exercising and not taking that third chocolate chip cookie. Hmm. Well, that leads me into another question. I don't know how you'll answer this one, or even if it's something to wrap our head around, but when it comes to decision-making, do you ever think that in the future, whether it's, you know, in our lifetime or perhaps the next, you know, We've got all this, you know, natural language processing. We've got Alexa. We've got all this stuff gathering data about ourselves. I mean, you look at target marketing, you know, you, you say the word car and the next thing you know on Instagram or on something, it's showing you something that you talked about or you clicked on. But because we're going to have devices that are connected to us 24-7, do you think eventually we'll be able to say, hey, Alexa, 
should I invest in blah, blah, blah? Or, hey, Alexa, do you think I should take this lady on a date? Or do you think there will ever become where AI somehow allows us to make or help make our decisions for us and take the human element out of it? I think it will be very bad to take the human element out of it. And let me describe why. Decisions are valuable only in the sense that they help us accomplish our goals and our values. You know, nobody can say what is the right value for us. You know, what do you value as a person? That is something that is particular and unique to each human being. And I think that's what helps make us all beautiful, that we all value different things. And that's okay. You know, we all have different values. We all have different perceptions of what's important. And the way that we live in a society is that we collaborate together to help us compromise and achieve as much of our mutual shared goals as possible. So our values we still need to be human. And that's kind of what makes us human, what we value, what we care about, who we are. Because what we care about is essentially who we are. So emotions are incredibly important. We should never do away with the human element of emotions. Emotions are very appropriate in determining our goals, what we actually want to achieve. But they're horrible in actually guiding us how to achieve them. Because our emotions cause us to make bad decisions because of the programming, the wiring that is part of us. So we need to set aside emotions, not in the decision-making process as a whole, but in the actual choosing how to get to our goals. So we use our emotions, our feelings, what we care about to decide what we want to reach. I mean, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't care about people. You know, my decision-making, my motivation is that I care about people. I don't want people to screw up. I care about organizations. I don't want organizations to screw up. I care about leaders and their followers because leaders have such an impact on people. And that's why, you know, what I'm doing, what I'm doing, that's motivating me. These are my emotions. But When I decide how to get to these goals, that's when you need to set aside emotions because your emotions will lead you in the wrong direction very often. So you want to use effective decision-making techniques to actually make these decisions. And there definitely can be and are decision-making aids. And I describe them in the book, you know, never go with your gut. The kind of decision-making aids, you know, there's a five-question technique that you can use to make effective, quick decisions in everyday life that will help you avoid screwing up. There's an eight step process for making more important major decisions where you want to maximize the outcome. And it's not only not screwing up, but also making sure to get the best decision possible for your long-term goals. These things, they're not going to be hard to automate. You can make them part, you know, if you have a, in the future, like you're saying, imagining brain chip implanted and you say, you know, Alexa, make sure that, you know, every time I write an email to my boss, I ask these five questions that uh, Dr. Gleb Sapursky created to avoid decision disasters. <laughs> you know, it's not going to be a hard thing to use that sort of a reminder. Right now, I have my clients actually place those five questions in front of them and have them ask these questions on a little you know, decision aid that they keep in front of their computer. So it's it's not a hard thing to integrate these, but it has to be you who is making the decision because only you know what goals you're trying to achieve in writing the email to your boss or you know to a loved one or something like that, like serious emails or meeting that you want to have, you know, you want to think about that, or you know, when you're launching a project, when you're whatever you're doing, you want to achieve your goals. So you know the goals. You can all use these technological decision aids to help you make the decision in the best possible manner. So that's the right role for these decision-making techniques to make sure that you can achieve your emotionally felt and true goals using the most effective means of doing so. 
Hmm, interesting. Interesting. That's definitely something to consider. And I mean, the way technology is going, you just never know. But I like your idea of, you know, having that little checklist or the reminders, having that readily available certainly can help people, at least, you know, right now. So one question I have before we close out here, we're coming up on an hour, so I want to respect your time. Is there something about you that not many people know about or any sort of hobbies or anything that kind of help you disconnect from the day-to-day research and book writing and, and all the other stuff that you're doing? Yeah, well, one of the really important things for me is I mentioned walking. I walk nearly every day with my wife for 30 minutes to 40 minutes, 45 minutes. And that's a time when uh, she and I have to catch up, you know, have a actual conversations in the busy day-to-day life, you know. So that's a really nice time for her and I to catch up. And it would be pretty bad if I was unable to connect with her in that way daily. And it combines a lot of good things. The research shows that walking outside helps address bad moods, depressions, anxieties. It helps improve fitness, health, obviously. And then for me and her, in an additional benefit, it helps make sure that we stay connected in our marriage. So my next book, The Blind Spots Between Us, which is coming out in April 2020, talks about the growing disconnection between people that leads to divorces. I mean, we have a huge divorce rate in our country of 40% or so, 40 to 50%. And that's terrible. I mean, you know, what kind of decision is that when we make a decision to get married and knowing that so many people get divorced? You know, nobody starts getting married thinking that they'll get divorced. But if you don't have a realistic perspective on this, if you don't have a perspective that, hey, you know, about half of all marriages and in divorce. So rather than like randomly going forward and thinking that everything will be great, I need to make sure that I stay connected to my loved one, address any issues in advance and collaborate effectively going forward for the future of our life. So that's, you know, married hopefully for life. And the way to do that is to make sure that nearly daily you check in on what's going on in your relationship, you know, stay connected, stay together rather than so many people. I mean, when they describe why they get divorced, they often talk about, you know, hey, we just drifted apart, didn't notice in the day-to-day busyness how our values changed and who we are changed. And that happens because people don't communicate and they don't engage with each other daily. You know, they just kind of live nearly as, you know, roommates with benefits, essentially, than life partners. So that's something that's really important for me to have that connection. No, I like that answer. I can certainly identify with you. I try and take at least 10 or 15 minutes out of my day. You know, usually towards the end of the day, you know, I actually sit in a sauna that I I turned one of our spare bedrooms into, I guess I call it the Zen Den. And that gives me time to sort of disconnect and, and reflect. And then after that, my wife and I will usually have at least half an hour, 40 minutes to sit and discuss the day and, and just, you know, communicate and get on the same page just because, you know, with kids and, you know, we got work and everything else, you know, life just gets so busy. So yeah, I certainly enjoy hearing that answer. And, and hopefully a lot of folks out there can take that and, and either, you know, use that sort of advice or, you know, at least consider it. But before we close out here, I want to take a few moments to tell everyone about our upcoming events for OGGN. Hey, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck for the next month. We have some exciting things coming up, two happy hours, one in Pittsburgh and one in Denver. So the first one will be happening on March 22nd at Bubba's Gourmet Burgers and Beer. This event will be from 4 to 7 and will feature a live recording of Oil & Gas This Week with Jake Corley and Mark LaCour. So be sure to check that out. You can sign up via our social medias. 
we have an Eventbrite sign up and should be good to go from there. The next event will be a happy hour in Denver at Liberty Oilfield Services on April 2nd. Once again, check our social medias for the Eventbrite sign up and sign up there. As some of our social media followers may know, we are headed to Aberdeen, Scotland the first week of March, in a couple days actually, for DokuruCon, creating high impact sales and energy. Dokuru is excited to launch its very first sales development conference, and OGGN's Mark and Patrick will be hosting a panel and recording a live podcast, so we're really excited to be joining that. The Leaders in Industry Luncheon is on March 11th at the Petroleum Club of Houston. Port of the Future is happening on March 10th and 11th in Houston. Your registration to the Port of the Future conference also allows you access to exclusive events, including TSA Security and Terrorism, Research Showcase, and many more. So be sure to view the agenda and see what they are offering. The Houston Energy Breakfast will be on March 20th at the Norris Conference Center in Houston. The API Energy Houston 3-Gun Chapter will be on March 20th. This event is filling up very quickly, so make sure to get a team in as soon as possible. The BP Energy Outlook 2020 edition will be on April 21st. It's happening online. And this event is about transitions that will take place to a low carbon energy system. That's all for this month, everybody. Hope you guys have a good month and check back in next month to see what events we're having. Thanks. Awesome. Thank you. And anyone out there in the Houston area interested in playing oil field hockey, come join the Hack and Whack crew for some old-timer hockey. We do it every two weeks at Memorial City Mall Ice Rink. Hit me up on LinkedIn for more details. And if you're looking to get in shape over the winter, if you've got that New Year's resolution that hasn't kicked in yet, visit KTX Fit in Katy, Texas and get a free trial by telling one of the coaches that I sent you. Well, Mr. Gleb, Dr. Gleb, thank you so much for joining me today. What's the best way for people to reach out to you or, you know, if you can send me some links, that would be great. But is there anything that the listeners can take away today? Definitely. So my book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, is a great way to find out about my work. And, you know, the whole conversation has been based and informed by the book. You can check it out in any physical bookstores. It's published by nice traditional business publisher called Career Press, so available everywhere. And you can check it out, of course, online everywhere, you know, whether Amazon, Barnes Noble, so on. Now, you can check out my resources on disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com. There's blogs, email lists, there's videos, podcasts, career coaching, speaking training services. And you can get the assessment on dangerous judgment errors in the workplace, free copy of it, on disasteravoidanceexperts.com slash subscribe. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com slash subscribe. And I'm available, quite frankly and freely, on LinkedIn. I'm very active there, so connect with me there. Dr. Gleb, G-L-E-B, Tsipursky, T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. Sounds great. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation today. Hopefully the listeners did too. And this might be one that I'll, you know, listen to on repeat because I think there was a lot of valuable information on there. So, you know, myself and I'm sure the listeners certainly appreciate your hard work and hopefully you're making a difference and continue to do so. So with that being said, always remember when the density is up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, Dr. Gleb. Thank you so much, Justin. It was a pleasure. Tune in next week for another captivating episode of Tendeka's Oil & Gas Onshore Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. 
Learn more at oilandgasglobalnetwork.com. 